Take your Bibles and open to the book of Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13 is our text this morning. We're continuing our sermon series entitled Mythbusters. If you can believe it, this is part five of this series. It's a series that um, busts common myths concerning core doctrines. Common myths concerning core doctrines. This series is important because truth matters. And we're trying to get to the truth of the matter in this series concerning these core doctrines. There's a lot of error. There's a lot of myths that surround these core doctrines, but we want to get to the truth. Now, today I'm going to skip the recap. If you've missed any of these messages, you can listen to them all on our podcast platform or our YouTube channel. Go to Apple Music, Amazon Music, or Spotify and search Revival Studios, and you'll find our platform there. Go search Liberty Church Bowmanville on YouTube, and you'll find the audio version of these messages there. And you can find it even easier than that by scanning the code that's on the little sheet in the seat in front of you and follow the links. All right, let's dive in. In this message, we're going to talk about the core doctrines concerning the kingdom of God. Now, there's a lot of misconceptions out there about the kingdom of God, but there really shouldn't be. John the Baptist, he came preaching in the wilderness, the kingdom of God is at hand in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2. And the the baptism of John the Baptist was actually a baptism of repentance and of preparation for entrance into the kingdom. John prepared the way for Jesus who came and said in Mark 1, 14 and 15 that the kingdom of God is at hand. It is nearby. It is close by. The first sermon Jesus ever preached was about the kingdom of God. And throughout his life and ministry, the Gospels record 92 different verses where Jesus uses the phrase kingdom of God, which is interchanged with kingdom of heaven in the book of Matthew. 92 different verses where the Gospel writers quote Jesus as saying the phrase kingdom of God. Of God. I'm saying there shouldn't be much confusion about this subject, but there is. And then Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, preached one final message. And can you guess what that message was about? It was about the kingdom of God. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, After Jesus suffered, he presented himself alive with many convincing proofs, appearing during 40 days and speaking of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was important to Jesus. He came to usher the kingdom of God into the world. In fact, when he taught his disciples to pray, what did he teach them to pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And yet still for all this teaching on the kingdom of God, confusion abounds in the church and in the world. On one end, some Christians believe that the kingdom of God is just a spiritual reality and that it has no real influence on secular society. That secular society is here and the kingdom of God is over here and never the two shall mix. This is a spiritual reality and secular society is physical 
and they don't interact whatsoever. Now, on the opposite end of that pendulum or spectrum, there are some Christians who are so vehemently opposed to things like the separation of church and state that they believe that the kingdom of God must control every social institution, every government, at every level, and that the kingdom of God should influence the laws of the nation. Now, somewhere in the middle, there are most Christians who either don't know or don't care about the kingdom of God. They're apathetic. Many Christians couldn't even define what the kingdom of God is. They can say things about the kingdom of God, but they can't quite define it. And they can't explain its purpose in the world. Is its purpose to just exist as a spiritual reality? Is its purpose to influence every level of uh, society? Or is its purpose to do something that sounds like that, but's actually completely different? Well, this message seeks to define the kingdom of God and explain its purpose in the world today. So hopefully by the end of this message, in an hour and a half from now, oh, you're listening, okay, good. Hopefully by the end of this message, you'll have a clearer understanding of what the kingdom of God is and its role, its purpose in the world today. So let's take a few moments to talk about what the Bible has to say concerning the kingdom of God. So you've opened your Bible to the book of Matthew chapter 13. Here's our text today, just two verses and actually three verses, they're on the screen for you. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 to 46 is actually what I want us to read. But they'll be up there for you. So Jesus says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Just think about that for a moment. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure, but it is hidden. It's hidden in a field. But when the man finds it in the field, for great joy, he goes and he sells everything he has, not to buy the treasure, but to buy the field the treasure is in. Jesus goes on to say in the next verse, Matthew 13, 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. So this guy sells jewelry. He sells pearls, this merchant. And the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who's looking for beautiful pearls who, when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. So the kingdom of heaven is like treasure in a field, something small in a large area, and the kingdom of heaven is like one single pearl of great price among many pearls. From our text, we see three things. One, the location of the kingdom of God is hidden from most people. Most people don't know where to find the kingdom of God. Why? Because they're born in sin and shapen in iniquity, and they do not have eyes to see it. 
the location of the kingdom of God is hidden from most people. The kingdom of God is not of this world. It doesn't have a geographical location. It is not of this world. In fact, Jesus said that to Pilate in uh, John chapter uh, 18 and verse 36. When Jesus said, this king, my kingdom is not of this world, if it was, these people would be fighting to save me. But they weren't fighting to save him, were they? They were fighting to have him killed. If Christ's kingdom was of this world, he wouldn't have been killed. But it is not of this world. It is of another world. That's why the location of the kingdom is hidden from most people. Number two, the value of the kingdom is hidden. What is the most valuable asset of the kingdom of God? What is the most valuable asset? What is the thing that is of great price in the kingdom of God? Well, 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19 says that it is the redeeming and precious blood of Jesus. Most people don't know the value of the blood of Jesus. They don't realize how valuable it is that it can redeem all mankind, that it can wash away the sins of all mankind. The value of the kingdom is hidden from most people. Most people don't know its most valuable asset. But those who find it gladly sacrifice everything to have it. How will they find it unless we tell them. We heard from our evangelism team this morning who does something very bold for most of us, and that is go out on the street and tell people where to find the kingdom of God. It would be ideal that most people would find the kingdom of God through relationship and through you know, coming to church and hearing the gospel and, and seeing the body of Christ in action and, and witnessing what it's like to live as members of the kingdom of God. But not everybody's going to show up here. Some people God is calling from the street. And so he's called people from our congregation to go into the streets, to show people where to find the kingdom. My dad used to say something like this, that we're just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And so the kingdom of God is hidden to most people. The, the, the bread of life is hidden from most people, but we found it. And so it is incumbent upon us to tell other people where to find it. And, you know, our text tells us that those who find it are willing to give up anything and everything to have it. That which is given up or lost in this life is nothing compared to what is gained in the kingdom of God. Jesus said, if anyone finds his life, he'll lose it. But if anyone loses his life for my sake, he will find it. And Romans 8, 18 says something to the effect of the, the sufferings we experience in this life pale in comparison to that which we will receive in heaven. You know that song, just one glimpse of his dear face, all sorrows will erase. Whatever we give up, whatever we lose in this life for the name and cause of Christ is nothing compared to what is gained. It is a great treasure it is a valuable pearl. 
Let's talk a little more about the kingdom of God by asking some investigative questions. First, what is the kingdom of God? Well, first of all, the kingdom of God is not a geographic location. The kingdom of God is not a political ideology. The kingdom of God implies the rule and authority of God on the earth through the church. What is the kingdom? Simply put, it is the rule and authority of God on this earth through the church, not through political institutions or political ideologies. I believe God's rule and authority is above all of that, and so there must be influence there, but we must never confuse the kingdom of God with the kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of God is the rule and authority of God on earth through his church, you and me. The the universal church, capital C, and the local church, small c, of which we are members here at Liberty. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans 14, 17 tells us that. That the kingdom of God is righteousness. There is no unrighteousness in the kingdom of God. In order to be in the kingdom of God, you must be made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Remember that redeeming and precious blood, that valuable asset of the kingdom. In order to get in, you've got to be washed. And when you get washed in that blood, you enjoy two kinds of peace. You enjoy peace with God, and you enjoy the peace of God. You see, there's nobody in this room today that's neutral with God. You're either at peace with him or at war with him. The nature that you were born with is at war with God if you don't have your sins on Jesus and have a new nature. And so it is when we are washed in the blood, we receive a new nature and we are then made, uh, we make our peace with God. But we don't just have peace with God, we can enjoy the peace of God, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, the peace of God that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And then when we have peace, It produces in us the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. And so the kingdom of God is the rule and authority of God on the earth through the church. It is righteousness, it is peace, and it is joy in the Holy Spirit. And the loyal subjects of the kingdom of God, well, that's you and I, the believer, God's very elect. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. 2 Peter 1 verse 10. See if you can beat me there. I'm already there. Second Peter 1.10, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. If you do these things, you will never stumble. Do what things? Supplement your belief with virtue and perseverance and godliness and love and kindness and all that stuff that he mentioned. He says, if you do those things, you'll never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who are the loyal subjects of God's kingdom? The called, the elect of God. The whosoever will call on the name of the Lord and be saved. 
That's what the kingdom of God is. When did the kingdom of God begin? The kingdom of God was first introduced in the book of Daniel. When Daniel foretold a coming kingdom that would begin during the days of the Roman Empire. Turn back there to Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. Here Daniel is explaining Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And in chapter 2 verse 44, Daniel says to the king... In those days, or sorry, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, and it will break into pieces and consume all other kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Daniel foretells of a coming kingdom, the kingdom of God, the rule and authority of God on the earth. The kingdom of God began on the day of Pentecost when Jesus himself predicted it would begin. And when I say Jesus predicted, of course, he he didn't predict in the way that we kind of understand predicting where it might or it might not happen. No, when Jesus predicts something, it happens and it did happen. Go to Mark chapter 9 and verse 1. Let's read that prediction of Jesus. That foretelling of Jesus. Maybe that's a better way to say it. Jesus says in Mark chapter 9 and verse 1, Assuredly, truly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God present with power. Power. The kingdom of God is the rule and authority of God on the earth through the church with power. Well, when did power show up for the people of God? When did power show up for the church? It showed up on the day of Pentecost. Flip over a few pages to Acts chapter 1, verse 6 to 8. Acts 1, 6 to 8. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked Jesus. Listen to what the disciples asked. Lord... Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? So Jesus has suffered. He's died. He's been buried. He's risen again. And now, as we read earlier, for 40 days, he's going around proving that he's alive and preaching the kingdom of God. And this was the disciples' reaction. Okay, are you finally going to do it now? Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, how many times did Jesus say the kingdom of Israel in the Gospels? Do you remember how many times he said kingdom of God? 92 times. The disciples still didn't get it. Is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And what did Jesus say? It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which which the Father has put under his own authority, but... You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The kingdom of God is the rule and authority of God in the world through the church with power for witness. Not to set up a geopolitical system, but to preach 
the gospel with power. So the kingdom of God began on the day of Pentecost. And how does it expand? Jesus gives us a clue. The kingdom of God expands when we go. When we go and preach the gospel with the Spirit's power. The kingdom of God expands through the Spirit-empowered preaching of the gospel. Go to Luke chapter 24 and verse 46. Luke 24 and 46. Jesus says, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in the name of Jesus to all nations starting in Jerusalem. You are my witnesses to these things. You see, it was never Jesus' intention to come and restore the kingdom to Israel, God has that set up. It's under his authority. It's not for us to know when he's going to do that. What we need to concern ourselves with is the kingdom of God. And and Jesus said it was necessary that he came to live a perfect life and die a sinner's death and be raised on the third day. And just as necessary as that, also is it necessary for us to to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins in all nations starting in Jerusalem. Go back a couple more pages to Luke chapter, or not Luke, Matthew chapter 24. We were just in Luke 24, now go back to Matthew 24 and verse 14. Matthew 24 and verse 14, this uh, is known as the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus predicts things that will happen at the end of the age. And here in uh, verse 14, he says, And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. The gospel is to be preached, where? In all the world, and to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus intended that his church would bring his rule and authority to the earth, through spirit-empowered preaching of the gospel. What are the keys to the kingdom? There's a big one to ask, a big question to ask. Now, there's lots of confusion concerning the keys of the kingdom, but now that we have discovered what the kingdom of God is and when it began and how it expands, it will inform our understanding of what the keys to the kingdom truly are. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 to Peter, you are Peter and on this rock, on this confession that Jesus is Lord, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it and I will give you the keys to the kingdom so whatever you bind on earth will be bound on earth and whatever you uh, loose in heaven will be loosed in heaven. That's my paraphrase. It's close, not word for word. But that's what Jesus says. And in this passage, Jesus uses the word church and kingdom interchangeably. He says to Peter, on this rock I will build my church and hell will not prevail against it and I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. So the keys to the kingdom have to do with the church and its responsibility in the world to preach the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what are the keys of the kingdom? 
Well, the keys of the kingdom are the gospel message itself, which is the power of God unto salvation. It's the conviction of sin. You can't get into the kingdom unless you're convicted of your sin because remember, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy. So in order for you to get righteous, you gotta get convicted of your sin first. Then after conviction, you gotta confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. You can't enter the kingdom unless you're born again. You can't be born again unless you hear the gospel, are convicted of your sins, and confess those sins. Once you get in, you got to be baptized in water. If you can, you got to be. What's stopping you? Be baptized in water. Share in his death and resurrection through baptism. And then you got to get into a church. You can't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing, but you got to get in. You got to be added to the church. Am I making this up? No, just read Acts chapter 2, and it's all right there. Let's go there. Acts chapter 2, 36 to 41, okay? I'm not making this up. It's just there. I'm just pointing it out to you. Acts chapter 2, 36 to 41. Peter's finishing up the first gospel sermon, the first spirit-empowered gospel sermon of the church. He's concluding And he says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus who you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He preached the gospel. Look at verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Conviction. And Peter said to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What do we do? I've heard the gospel. I'm now convicted. What do I do? Verse 38, Peter said to them, repent. Confess your sins. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, for this promise is to you and to all your children and to those who are far off. So that's you and I. You know the, do you know you're in the Bible? You're one of those who are far off that the Lord has called. Verse 40, and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. And look at the church membership part, verse 41. Then those who gladly received this word and were baptized on that day were 3,000 souls, and they were added to them, to the church. They were in the number Of the saints, their names were written down in the book. That's the keys of the kingdom that Jesus has given not only to his 12 disciples or to the Apostle Paul, but to all of us who receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why is the kingdom of God so important? The kingdom of God is the means through which his will is fulfilled on earth as it is in heaven. It's why he taught us to pray that way. It's how God reigns on the earth, saves people from their sins, delivers them from their enemies. The kingdom of of God is how God reveals his glory and establishes his righteousness on the earth until the day he comes again. Go back to Matthew chapter 13 for a moment. Man, Matthew chapter 13 and verse 47, the next parable after our, 
After our text, the parable of the hidden treasure and the great pearl, Jesus talks about the parable of the dragnet, and he says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered up every kind of fish. Then when it was full, it was drawn into the shore, and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and separate the wicked from the just and cast the wicked into the furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said the gospel will be preached in all the nations and then the end will come. So until Jesus comes, the dragnet has been thrown out and we're gathering people in. And at the end of the age, Jesus said the angels will come and separate the good from the bad. In other places, he called them sheep and goats or wheat and weeds. There's a separation day coming, a judgment day coming, when the author of human history steps out onto the stage and the play is over, the, the great drama of human history is over and everyone's decision remains what it is at that moment. My encouragement to you today, if you're listening to my voice in heaven already, make your decision for Jesus. Get your sins off of you and onto him. Get a new nature. Be born again. And get into the kingdom of God. So let me just summarize everything I've said to this point, and then I just want to make a couple of more points, and we'll, we'll go The kingdom of God is the church. The church is called to advance the kingdom of God through the spirit-empowered preaching of the gospel to all nations. And that phrase, all nations, doesn't mean individuals within a nation or tribes, languages, and tongues within nations. It literally means nations. That the gospel is to be preached to nations. Christ rules the universe as king. And he is above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. And one day he will not only rule positionally from heaven at the right hand of the Father, but Revelation tells us that he will actually rule on earth at his second coming. That's what I want you to know about the kingdom of God today. For a few moments, as consistent with our series, let's ask two questions. What does the zeitgeist say, and how has it crept into the church? The zeitgeist is the spirit or mood of this age. It's what they think out there. What does the zeitgeist say about the kingdom of God? Well, if, if the world acknowledges the kingdom of God or the church at all, it says that the church or kingdom of God has no right to influence the kingdoms of this world. That you can have your sincerely held beliefs, but just have them in that building. Just have them over there and leave us alone. Remember I said there's a lot of Christians who believe the kingdom of God is just a spiritual reality. exists apart from the secular world and that there's no crossover at all. Well, the, the world is saying that about the church. If they say anything positive about us at all, it's that we have sincerely held beliefs, but we should keep them to ourselves and just do it in that building behind closed doors. 
And the other thing the, the zeitgeist says about the church or the kingdom of God is that it's outdated, that it's oppressive, that it's barbaric. Many people in the world today blame the church or the kingdom of God for the wars that have happened, for the genocides, the crusades, the inquisitions, the slavery and the subjugation of women and on and on. They blame the church for these things and at times we've certainly been involved in these things or at least people within the church have but I'm talking about the true church, the true kingdom of God. Have you ever heard somebody say, the church has had their chance. It's time for them to move over and let somebody else be in charge. You ever heard that? If you've heard that, then that is the zeitgeist saying that you're irrelevant, outdated, that your movement, that that what you believe in is oppressive and it's barbaric. The kingdom of God has at times been characterized this way. And unfortunately, that has crept into the church itself. How has it crept in? I've done a lot of thinking this week and I've concluded that the zeitgeist has crept into the church through passive piety or pious pacifism and political apathy. Now, I said that there was one group of Christians that said it's just a spiritual reality and it's got nothing to do with the world and society. And there's another group of people that, that think it has everything to do with secular society and that, um, you know, everything we do, everything we say, everything we think as a nation has to line up with Scripture. I think both of those exist on the extremes, and as I said at the beginning, there is a more fuller reality that exists in the middle that's actually better than both, more effective than both. The church's role in society is to expand the rule and authority of God through means of preaching the gospel, or through the means of preaching the gospel. The Bible itself promotes the separation of church and state, but it does not promote the separation of state and God. Paul says what in Romans 13? That all authority is granted by God for the punishment of evildoers and for the protection of life and property. God has ordained the state for something and the church for something else. And there is separation between the two, but God has never suggested once that the state is separate from him, for all rule and authority comes from God. The church is not called to order society, charge taxes, maintain a standing army, prosecute criminals, protect property. That's not our job. That's not why we're here. Never once have we been commissioned to do so. However, when civil institutions seek autonomous power and authority, the church does have a responsibility to cry foul. When governments enact unjust laws or laws that deny or defy the laws of nature and nature's God, the church must act as the conscience of the state. The church cannot be apathetic or allow evil to run rampant in the culture. 
There's nothing pious about watching society descend into chaos and anarchy. There's nothing good about carelessly standing off and letting our institutions become temples of the pagan gods Baal, Ishtar, and Moloch. Our institutions are places of worship, whether you like it or not. If they're not worshiping and honoring Yahweh God, they will worship and honor another God. They will, and they are. The pagan god, the ancient god, Mesopotamian god of Baal was the god of political advantage, and Israel worshipped the Baals to have political advantage with the neighboring nations. The god of Ishtar is the god of sexuality, and the god of Moloch is the god of child sacrifice, which god is, which god are our institutions worshipping? We're just taking a look at it. Yahweh God? Or the God of political advantage? The God of sex? The God of child sacrifice? We have to cry foul. And I know it's not easy. It's not comfortable. It's something we'd rather not do. But we are called to be the conscience of the state, though we are not called to be the state. Now, it is a good thing, guys, for us to want our society and culture to be under the rule and authority of God. As a church, we were taught to pray that way. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you're a believer in Christ, then you want society to reflect the rule and authority of God. You want society to glorify the God you love and serve. However... This comes about through individual regeneration, not legislation. Let me give you an example. Now, I think this is a great thing. Last year in June, the, the Supreme Court ruling in the United States, Roe v. Wade, was overturned. As amazing as that is, it's never going to save one person from their sins. It's going to save a lot of babies from being killed. But those babies still have to grow up to accept Jesus Christ as Lord. Being rescued from something as awful as abortion still doesn't rescue someone from their sins. It doesn't guarantee entry into the kingdom of heaven. But let me say this. Being born again makes something like Roe irrelevant If you're a regenerated person, it doesn't matter what abortion laws exist in our country, you're not going to have one. Now, if you do, there is the grace of God to cover you and love you, and there is the church of God, the body of Christ to come alongside of you and support you and care for you. But the regenerated person is subject to a higher law. The moral law of God, thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Shalt not lie. Bear false witness. Covet. Have any other gods before Yahweh God. God's moral law 
is lived out in the church and it transforms society. So do we cry foul when our institutions become temples of worship to other gods? Yes. Do we cry foul when our institutions seek their own autonomous authority from God and defy him? Yes. But what's our answer? Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. More and more, louder and louder, preach the gospel. There is too much at stake to just sit on the sidelines and be passive or be apathetic. But churches, and I learned this week, as well as mosques and synagogues, are filled with people who don't know what time it is, who couldn't be bothered, and who are led by pastors who care more about their charitable status than their obligation to listen to God rather than man. I was talking with a gentleman this week, Naveed. He was telling me at his mosque, uh, their leader and the people are so concerned about losing their charitable status that they don't, want to, they don't want to stand up and be counted in this cultural moment. They're scared because they don't want to lose this, this charitable status. And I said to him, well, I can appreciate that because I'm sure there's a lot of churches and pastors in the PAOC that feel that way. Liberty, I think, is not one of those places. And I said, we're not a charity that holds church services. We're a church that holds a charitable number. And there's a difference. We're called to be charitable as the church. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit, but we are not a charity that has church services. We're the church of God. We're the church of Jesus Christ in the world. To this point, we have been given the blessing of holding a charitable number, but we must listen to God rather than man. So I'm going to conclude here now. Thank you so much for listening, uh, for uh, allowing me to, to deal with this subject today. In order to reverse the tide in the church of pious pacifism and political apathy, we're going to need some men. We're going to need some men to reclaim their God-given authority and headship. A lot of men are also passive and apathetic in their homes, at their job. Now, of course, they're victims of a society that degrades them whenever possible. And it's been going on for a long time. But men, we need to become people of the book. We need to be men who know this thing and who live it out in our daily lives, in our marriages, and in our families. We witnessed one man today who said, I'm going to raise my children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. I'm going to vow to raise them to love and serve Jesus Christ. That's a man. That's what men do. And men need to reclaim their God-given authority and headship in the home. If you reclaim this authority and headship to lord over your spouse, to lord over your children, it's not the authority and headship that the Bible gives you. For we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church and live with her in an understanding way. We're not to provoke our children to wrath, but to love them and care for them and be patient with them. But we got to stand up and claim our authority and headship. We got to get off the sidelines. 
we got to stand up and be counted. Guys, we got to learn to preach the gospel. We got to learn how to preach the gospel. The simple gospel we preach at Liberty is Jesus Christ is God. He came from heaven to earth to live a perfect life, to die a sinner's death, to be buried, and to rise again to save us from our sins. He ascended into heaven, and from there he will return one day to judge the living and the dead. It's a simple gospel. If you learn those simple points, you can preach the gospel in your family. You can preach the gospel at your work. You can preach the gospel on the street. You can preach it to your neighbors. It's a simple gospel. And guys, we got to learn how to preach it and preach it well. And we got to believe it. And we got to believe its power, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Everything changes when we bring Jesus into the equation. For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Guys, if you learn how to preach the gospel and you live it out in your life, as imperfect as we all are, I promise you, your wife's going to follow you. She's going to follow your example. She's going to come in line. She's going to come under your authority and headship because you're leading the way by example. And then your children will follow you as well. Do you know that the Bible preaches household salvation? Man, if you make this declaration, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, I believe that God will never stop pursuing your wife and your children until the very end. He will always pursue them because he believes in household salvation. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so, guys, I want us to, I want us to stand up to get off the sidelines and, and get into the field of play. Learn to preach the gospel above all. Yeah, you know what? You need to know what's going on in your country to the level that you're interested. You need to know what's going on in your kid's school and, and things of that nature, but you gotta know what's going on in here above all that. What's going on in this book. You need to know how to preach it. And I promise you, if you do, your family's gonna follow you. Now, they might be following far off for a while, and it might feel like they're never going to catch up. You just keep leading that way. Just keep leading that way. And if you did what Mikhail and Michelia did tonight or this morning, if you dedicate them to the glory of God, I believe that God's going to pursue them to the very, very end. And when it all seems hopeless, hope will spring. Men, we need to get up. We need to get off the sidelines. We got to get into the field of play. And finally, we got to show no weakness. Remember, the gospel, or sorry, the kingdom of God is advanced through spirit empowered ministry, not spirit weakened ministry. The spirit doesn't soften us, oh, it humbles us. The spirit gives us the fruit of the spirit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self control, absolutely. But it certainly doesn't weaken us, it empowers us. And so we need to show no weakness. We need to demonstrate the power of the Holy Spirit wherever we go. The church of God for too long and men within the church of God specifically have been like the army of Israel for the last 50 years. Remember the story of David and Goliath, the army of Israel, the mighty men of God are standing in the field scared of one Goliath, one giant, and this little boy comes along with a slingshot and it says, who would defy 
the living God of Israel. See, we can't be afraid. We can't show weakness. Greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. We are overcomers. We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. We need to be Davids who are ready to slay Goliath. Every lofty idea that raises itself against the knowledge of God, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they have divine power to tear down strongholds. Victory is guaranteed. The outcome has already been determined. Christ made a public spectacle of the prince and power of the air, the spirit of the age. He made a public spectacle on the cross that day. The, the, the win is guaranteed, but we still have to fight. And we have to fight with power of conviction. Romans, sorry, Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Until that verse is fulfilled and becomes our reality in the millennial kingdom, we must hold the line and take ground from the enemy who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What are the gates of hell? It's the authority of the spirit of this age that comes from the spirit and prince of the air, Satan himself. The gates of hell are trying to prevail against the church. The gates of hell are trying to prevail against your family and against your marriage. But we have stronger gates. Amen. You think about that. Amen. Amen. <laughs>